Welcome to the Founders Podcast. Whose bright idea was this anyway? I'm Andrew Peyton Smith, founder and CEO of Jizoodle. Welcome to episode eight of the Founders Podcast, Whose Bright Idea Is This Anyway? And this morning, we're sitting in a wonderful office in Bondi Junction um, with the CEO and founder of Lumi, and that's Yanni Yakutel. Welcome, Yanni. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be on a podcast. I'm quite a keen podcaster myself, so it's uh, always a pleasure. Absolutely. And, and a monumentous uh, episode because the drought hopefully starting to break around New South Wales at the moment. So with some really good rain that's happening at the moment. So, Yanir, you founded Lumi about three years ago as a, a means of providing transparent and responsible lending to small businesses through the provision of excellent customer service and data-driven services. Why did you start? What gave you the inspiration to start Lumi? Like anything else, I think it's multifactorial. I was looking for something to do and I was sort of trying to sort of scratch an entrepreneurial itch that I was having. I was recently uh, moved back to Australia after a stint in the UK and the time was right for me. And I was spending quite a lot of time in Israel going backwards and forwards and I was sort of seeing the seeds of the fintech revolution started to sprout there. And as most of your listeners will know, like Israel is quite a technological um, and innovation hub. And a lot of that entrepreneurial and innovation focuses to the US, UK and Western Europe and no one was really sort of focusing on Australia. Mm. I, I sort of saw, identified that Australia was about five years behind the curve compared to the UK, which is quite a competitive financial services market and also as a consequence of that, a fintech market. And just the lack of capital that's available, there's just like a dysfunctioning debt capital market in Australia across the debt capital market, across the debt spectrum. And for a variety of reasons, I decided to focus on SME because I thought that was like mm. the most underserved sector and one that I could like have uh, the quickest and the most impact. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess from as a small business um, ourselves can totally relate to that real problem of, of funding growth. So you've either got two options is to to go and sell your soul um, uh, in the equity markets and so forth, or find lending institutions. But as you say, Australia has traditionally been been run by the big four banks, who again need you to sell sell your soul and that of your grandmothers to to receive financing. Yeah, but you know, like even you know, the so called selling your soul in the equity market. You know, the, the equity cap, external equity capital is available either to bigger firms once they hit the public market, mm-hmm. or in the private market, it's predominantly f- through VCs. And these were like exponentially, exponential ideas, right? Like, you know, if you're opening a cafe or restaurant or, you know, you're a tradie or you you, know, you fix shoes or wh- whatever the case may be, like that access to equity capital isn't available to you mm. anyway, right? And I think on, in, on the debt side, you hit the nail bang on the head, right? Like it's the big four banks. They're focused on either very big in- corporates and institutions and they're reasonably good, even though they're being disrupted there in consumer lending. And anything sort of in the SME, they're not doing very well. But like even on mortgages, which has been their bread and butter, they're being disrupted, right? Like there are a few very high profile companies that are disrupting them on mortgages. And I think, you know, you said you being a small, we're also a small mm. business. And I feel, you know, and we're a small business that's 
growing very fast. We're probably sort of like a medium-sized business now, you know, sort of around 30 staff, et cetera. And a simple thing like a credit card, a corporate credit card, weren't able to get from our bank. And it's really, yeah. you know, we've, you know, raised millions of dollars. We've got top tier investors, you know, we've featured on the F. Our bank knows us, you know, millions of dollars go in and out of our accounts. You know, we've mm. never been a day late paying an invoice. Yet a company that doesn't have two years financials can't get a credit card. So I fund the business with a personal credit card. Yeah. And that just shows you the anomaly in the market of how small businesses are just not being served by the banks. That is astounding. Absolutely. And I can completely relate to it because it's like my credit card's completely maxed out, which is Uno at the moment. And yeah, that is absolutely astounding. Now, in the, in the US, you've got um, companies such as Brex that are, that are sort of getting into the small business and the startup sort of short-term credit card type lending. Is, is that something you'd be looking at in the, in the um, future? Possibly. Like we've got a roadmap of various products that we want to do. Invoice discounting and factoring is probably mm-hmm. like the, uh, our next product. We, yeah. we think there's a lot to be done there, but there's a lot of innovation to be done on credit card and payments. Mm-hmm. Just as an anecdote, I just recently came back. I was overseas for the holiday. I used a product. It's a UK product, but it's open globally. I don't know if you know it. It's called Revolut. It's like okay. a, it's a new credit card for overseas transactions. So you basically get the spot FX rate. Yeah. When you're buying things. And I did a few comparisons paying with my local credit card, how much I'll be charged. I was in the UK. So what would be the cost in pounds? What would be mm. the translated costs in, in Australian dollars compared to using my traditional credit card and the revolution? And it was unbelievable. It was like a 10% difference, which is, you know, wow. like after, you know, spending three weeks overseas, you know, yeah. that adds up. That was hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of saving. And that is, again, something that another fintech is doing in the mm. UK and disrupting traditional financial services. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, f- fantastic. So what's been the highlight of 2019 for Lumi? Wow, it's been a phenomenal year for us. We more than doubled our staff. We did a very big capital raise around the middle of the year, just um, sort of midway through Q2. Our origination volumes have really grown exponentially. So like it's, we've really seen sort of very, not only rapid growth, but also the rate of growth has been uh, increasing. And I think sort of 2019 was really the year that we transitioned from being really sort of a startup in the garage mm-hmm. sort of sense of the word to a real sort of scale up that's, yeah. I use corporate, not in the negative sense, but like sort of really transitioned to being sort of an adolescence or a maturing mm-hmm. company that's really institutionalized in terms of like the investors that we're bringing in, both on the debt and the equity side. And the way that we govern ourselves. So it's, yeah. it's really been a momentous year for us. Mm, absolutely wonderful. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an amazing journey. So tell us more about yourself. What drives you and motivates you personally? I don't know. Like it's, I like creating things. Always been sort of a disruptor. Mm-hmm. As probably most of my school teachers throughout my school years would attest. Normally was sort of disruption in the class. I've got a very short attention span. Like, and even though now it's sort of overdiagnosed when I was a child, mm. um, it was a lot less common, but I was uh, diagnosed with ADHD. So it's okay. like it's something that's always been there. Given sort of come Jewish middle-class background, my parents sort of pushed me into or encouraged me, I should say, to go into the profession. So I, I went to law school, qualified as a lawyer, but that was like a terrible career choice yeah. for me. And then my transition, then transitioned to working in shipping for most of my career. 
again, finance-related roles, but those were sort of more suited to me. That was sort of global. There was a lot of time out of the office. There was a lot of hustle. I ended up in Australia um, by chance as a love immigrant, came here chasing a girl, uh, <laughs> which worked out well. She's now my wife, so that proved a good decision. I think really the thing that motivates me now is when you build a business, it's really, it's like, nurturing a child like it's yeah. it's jet like i've got one kid and and lumi i always say it's like my second child it's taking something from nothing and building it and it really doesn't matter i think for most of entrepreneurs what it is right like it's at the end of the day like whether it's lending you know the passion comes from the understanding and once you're yeah. doing something but like to tell you that when i was 15 i was sort of dreaming about like alternative sme finance obviously mm-hmm. not right like it's yeah. not one of those things but once you get into something and you understand the complexities, you know, there comes the interest and the challenge. And then you get like this constant feedback loop from the customers and the staff and invest. And it's really addictive, right? It's the same mm-hmm. sort of rush that you get from being an athlete and scoring a goal or winning yeah. a tennis match, all these sorts of things. It's just like, it's really high adrenaline, high reward sort of environment if you get it right. Mm, absolutely. And that, no, that's fascinating. It's interesting to say you, uh, say a diagnosis of ADHD as well. I don't think I've ever been diagnosed, yeah. but my attention span is at- atrocious at times. And, and I can be flipping from one thing to another, to the next thing. And, um, but then always going back. And then, and you've always got that curiosity for that one area of your business, yeah. which you've just got to get back to. And there's a, there's a real itch that you need to scratch. That's what, what I yeah. found in. Absolutely. I, I get it all the time. And like, you know, sometimes if I think of something like I've literally got to do it now, I'll get out of bed and like it yeah. drives my wife crazy. But I think there must be an overrepresentation of ADHDs mm. in entrepreneurial circles. You know, the famous case is Richard Branson, but I think there must be so many more. And I'd like to see sort of from a cultural perspective, sort of channeling children, young adults that have these attributes, which are positive attributes into sort of these channels instead of sort of trying to push them into, you know, becoming yeah. doctors, lawyers, engineers, yep. which sort of been the traditional sort of success stories of like the education system and different people can do different things. And obviously mm. being a doctor, lawyer, and engineer is great, right? Like my wife's yep. a doctor. My son, who's eight, says he wants to be a doctor. Hopefully he manages to do that, but like, mm. it's not suitable for everyone and there's yeah. just many ways of being successful and having a successful career and i think now the acceptance of entrepreneurism is like it's becoming like a valid yeah sort of career choice yeah absolutely that's fantastic so tell us a little bit more about lumi now how did the idea come about i was looking for something to do and mm. like i sort of zoned into financial services because i thought that's where i had a competitive advantage because i'm not a, i don't have a technical background but i do have a finance background yeah and i was doing a lot of research as to where in alternative finance to focus in australia and really sme is and more the snsme and that's really our focus mm. is the most underserviced and underbanked group in australia it really started Quite really, you know, sort of an idea. The idea sort of translates into a PowerPoint presentation. You go hit shoe leather, right? You hit the pavement, you see investors, you raise money. And the journey has been from conceptualizing an idea, putting it into PowerPoint, putting it into Excel, raising money, 
and then sort of running her back and reverse engineering and solving the problem from a technology perspective. I think one of the things that really sets Lumi apart, even within the cohort of SME alternative lenders, and a few of them now, is really our focus has always been from the get-go on mm. technology. Yeah, It's been something that we've really invested a lot of time and money and effort into from the beginning. And there were a lot of questions that were raised. Are we sort of over-engineering the problem? Why don't we spend sort of more of the money of, that we've raised on growth as opposed to more less mm-hmm. and less on infrastructure and technology? I've always been an absolute firm believer that that is the wrong way to go. And like the right way to go is really setting up the infrastructure for scale and growth. And it's sort of seemed we were doing it, we're doing it, and it took for a while for it to pay off. But really sort of middle of last year, and as I said, like it was a momentous year for us. At some point, like there was like an inflection point, and all of a sudden we started getting these economies of scale for the infrastructure that we've developed. And that has really fueled the exponential growth that we've seen which I don't think we would have been able to achieve had we not Mm. had that in place and tried to sort of retrofit back end to chase like a growing front end. And I think that's a a big mistake that a lot of startups across the spectrum make. They sort of try and chase the growth and you've got to run. Okay, I understand that because, you know, people look at the growth. But once you get to that inflection point and you try to retrofit, it's very, very hard to do. Yeah, I've seen that in business so many times. And funny enough, I've had a number of um, interesting debates with my fellow shareholders and, and other founders of uh, of Chizoodle where I've wanted to put that infrastructure, that scale, it's that scalable infrastructure in place early because when with the time when things do turn on, you've got to be ready and you've got to be ready to go quickly. Now, the downside of that, of course, is you're putting energies and resources into non-revenue grow, uh, growing areas of the business potentially but like you say to be able to cope with that growth when it does come it's a punt right like it's it's a big big punt and you know there's not necessarily always a right answer you know i've got my view Mm. and it was relevant for us and our business and our and it paid off but sometimes it doesn't pay off right you know you need to and that's always the challenge of being a startup founder is like making these decisions with very very scarce resources and it's always trading off between alternatives that are yeah absolutely um what what significant hurdles have you had to overcome in the building of of lumi in fairness like lumi i can't say it's a bit plain sailing you know Mm. it it has been very 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 stressful and very hard and it's not just my hard work i've got a phenomenal team Mm. i think most of the hurdles were pre-lumi so i had a business before that called Sale, which wasn't as successful as Lumi, it was in a similar space. And I had issues with shareholders and you know, we had artistic differences and we decided mm-hmm. to go our separate ways. The transition from Sale to Lumi was very, very stressful and it was a big hurdle. We weren't sure up until the last minute if we'll be able to raise the money and actually pull it off. You know, sort of, you asked earlier questions, sort of what motivates me? And mm. sort of the flip side of that is, I think one of the things that sort of really defines me both as a person, I think predominantly as an entrepreneur, I'm not the techiest guy. You know, I've got a finance background, but I'm not like a super numerate financier, like the people that do it much better than me. And, you know, we've got them here with Lumi. But like, there's one thing is the determination. And, you know, there's the Hebrew word chutzpah that's sort of been translated into, adopted into English. 
like that, I think I'm probably second to none. Like literally, mm. I will not take no for an answer. I've got like yeah. this de- determination and grit that will just whatever knockback I get, I just get up, yeah. do it again, get up, do it again. And there's a very sort of interesting book that was written by a famous Israeli entrepreneur. It's called 99 Doors. And basically, it is the journey of an entrepreneur is, you know, you open a door and it's a dark corridor and the hundred doors, 50 on the left, 50 on the right. You open everyone, it's another dark corridor. And, mm. and it's just basically like a constant maze of having doors slammed in your face, you know, investors that you think are going to invest in the last minute don't invest in, and you know you build your hopes up and you just can't be disheartened by anything because the journey I think in life for most people is marred by as many failures as it is by success. You know, even Roger Federer like loses yeah. tennis games all the time, right? Yeah. Like he goes into center court, he's having a bad day, he gets he loses, you know, the like yeah. he goes home, has a shower gets dressed and goes to the next competition and tries mm. to play again, right? And if that's for Roger Federer, you know, imagine what it must be like for the guy that's like number 150 in the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I think for an entrepreneur, it's exactly the same. There's a lot of pressure on you, sort of, a lot of people focus on your staff, your investors, etc., mm-hmm. and you just got to get yeah. on with it. And I think a lot of the confidence that people have in you, both externally, like investors, and both and also internally as staff, is actually your ability to stay calm, focused, mm. measured through those tribulations yeah. to steer the company into success. Because like, but it's going well, it's easy, right? Like yeah, everyone like absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's really interesting because I've met obviously a, a number of entrepreneurs in um, during my own journey. And the one thing that really stands out is the ability that once they get knocked down, that they not only get up again, but they actually learn something from being knocked down. And um, and that just totally sets entrepreneurs out apart yeah. from from a lot of people that you meet. The ability yeah. to just write, okay, what did I do wrong now? How can I actually improve that and make sure it doesn't happen again? Because yeah. it's almost this, I will not let this happen to me again. You know, that's interesting. Like, you know, there's a cultural aspect to this. So as I mentioned, I'm Israeli originally. Mm. Is there, like in, in Israel, when you pitch a business to a, a startup to a, a VC, almost always they'll ask you, what have you done in the past? What are your failures? And yeah. actually having been, you know, second, third, fourth time founder of previous businesses that have failed mm. is actually like a positive thing. They'll ask you, okay, you founded startup A, startup A failed. Yeah. Why? What did you learn about? Okay. Then you went to startup B, startup B failed. What did you learn about it? And yeah. 90 whatever percent of startups fail like it's not yeah it's not necessarily not always the the fault of the founder or, or usually it is whereas in australia i still feel that i don't know if it's because of the tall poppy syndrome or, or whatever it is I'm, I'm a newcomer here so i haven't fully understood it but like if you go and you try and pitch a business and you say and ask okay you had startup a and it failed and then startup b and it failed you'll find it harder to raise the money for startups yeah. as opposed to easy, even though you're like much more seasoned, et cetera. Now, if you start, fail, startup A fail because mm. you're a fraud or you're lazy, obviously people shouldn't touch you with a yardstick. But if you went, try to build a business, you got the timing wrong, there wasn't the product market fit, whatever the case may be, you know, one of those reasons that caused 90% of good mm. startups to fail, 
surely you're more seasoned and more experienced. The probability yeah. of success goes up. It doesn't go down. Absolutely. You, you've talked to exponentially more potential clients. Yeah. You've understood the barriers and the pitfalls along the way and so forth. So yeah. it, should be, it should be a good thing in many respects. But listen, but, I yeah. think there'll be a change, right? Like the, the VC industry in Australia is still quite young, mm. probably about sort of less than 10 years. And most of the guys that run VCs in Australia are come from the investment background as opposed to yeah. former founders sold their business. I think once, you know, there's sort of this full cycle of entrepreneurs build businesses, sell businesses, make a lot of money, go sort of a career change, sort of a Mike Cannon Brook sort of guy. Yeah. That, you know, that will which you see now they're doing it alongside their business. Mm. You know, once they become sort of full time investors, which is I'm sure they will at some point, like a an investor that's an ex-founder sees the world in a very, very different yeah. world and for, for a very different lens than an investor that's an ex-investment banker or an analyst or a banker or whatever the case may be. Right? Like you just, there's just something you don't understand yeah. about what it's like if you haven't done it. If you haven't done yeah. it, absolutely. And for, fun enough, um, um, family and friends, mine and Love them to bits, but it's just, unless they've done it themselves, there's absolutely no comprehension as to what you go through as a founder. Absolutely none, none at all. Uh, military service is the same. Right? Mm. Like I, you know, we've got conscription, so I've spent three years in the Israeli military. If I talk to a guy that spent three years but wasn't in the front line out of his work, you know, with intelligence, intelligence, he's got literally no comprehension of what some go. I'll speak to an Australian guy, UK, or an American guy who went to Afghanistan. Right? Like, there's a certain understanding, and that's why also the camaraderie is so strong. Right? Like yeah. You go through something together or a similar experience in bonds, and we actually feel it here at Lumi. So we've got the core team that was worked together at sale transition. We went through literally the trenches together, and there's a certain bond that binds us that is hard to replicate. Mm. And it's something that actually we're trying to manage as we grow because you know, that is the core team, but like now we're a different business and we're bringing a lot more people and we used to be 100% of the team, now we're sort of a lot less than half. Yeah, And we want to make it as inclusive as possible for the newcomers, but there's mm. still something there yeah. that we can't replicate with others. Yeah, absolutely. And it, which actually leads on very nicely into the... To, so the next question, and really about your scale-up, and we've talked about getting the infrastructure, back-end infrastructure in place to help you that. What difficulties or surprising good parts have you had with regards to the scale-up um, of Lumi so, so far? Is there any, any things that have surprised you or um, that you've not necessarily been ready for but you've had to overcome? Recruitment and hiring is really a challenge for us. Yeah. It just We're very, very picky with who we hire. And, it's, and as I said, we've got like a really, really good team. But picking and curating those people, very, very, very hard. Mm. And that is something that continues to be a struggle for us. I think managing the culture is also something that's yeah. really hard. Like to move from, as I said, core team that transitioned from Cell to Lumi. We were literally sort of running, a, we didn't have an office. We we're sitting in like at libraries and like yeah. finding places to work with a, with a flip up chart. Then we moved into this business. You know, then we started hiring a lot of people. Still, it had sort of a garage feeling to it. Yeah. Now, I think the transition from sort of 30 to 50, then 50 to 100, it's just a different business. Right? Like now it's mm. a company. 
We've got different all types, different educational backgrounds, different social and cultural backgrounds. And it's just a transition that needs to be managed. Mm. On the one hand, you know, we really want to sort of keep this maverick, startup-y, agile, sort of culture. But on the other hand, like we're employer of many people, right? That people come in and, and not everyone is that way inclined and you know the variety of roles and and it's it's balancing that i think that's been has is and will continue to be a challenge another is given our growth we need to raise a lot of money very quickly so really we've got a lot of focus on capital raise and we're really essentially perpetual capital Mm. raise yeah but apart from that like i think given what i said before that we've really laid the infrastructure early We've had a lot less growing pains yeah. from an infrastructure perspective, origination perspective, a general operation perspective than other scale-ups would um, yeah. experience in that sort of trajectory. That gamble's really paid off for us. Okay. Excellent. Now, when it comes to recruitment, I've, I've heard this a few times, so obviously there's a couple of different factors. First of all, are the problems getting the right type of people, i.e. from a cultural fit into the business, or the numbers of skills that you require, or is it a bit of both? Is it is it lack of um, skilled people or, or the cultural fit? That- no, I think it's a bit of both. Okay. There's, you know, it's much easier to quantify the skills. You know, Australia has full employment, right? So yeah. So, like, there's shortage of skilled people. It's candidates or employees, and it's good to have, you know, a lot of choice, and, more, mm. you know, and especially the good ones. And I think it's also... Early on, the further you grow and the more developed you become, yeah. the easier it is to attract very, very talented stuff. So it's either people that come on very, very early on yeah. because they like the trenches, garagey sort of nature of the business, or then you're sort of getting into this middle phase that you're not sort of the garage yet, but you're not sort of quite mm. a classian yeah. and, or Google or whatever the case may be. And then, especially on the engineering side, but it's drawn on other aspects as well. Sort of people are reluctant because it's sort of neither here nor there, but you want to get sort of the top tier caliber, but then going either to more established companies or very early Mm. startups. But I think now we're out of the woods. We're really becoming really attractive for these types of people that have a lot of choice. And I think one of the things that really warmed my heart, we have like once people join us, and that's been across my journey, including itself. Like once people sort of join, if we like them, they work. Like we've got very low attrition. Like people actually don't resign. So unless it's you know people yeah. moving overseas, maternity leaves, or whatever it is, like people don't leave us to go to other places, which is really sort of a strong indication of yeah the culture that we have here. Absolutely. And actually, one of the biggest sources of new staff that we have is staff referral. So it's actually okay. people bring their friends and acquaintances. So yeah. That says a lot about a culture. It says, no, it does say, and mm. people bring them. And we've had like people genuinely sort of join us. It's, it's more prominent on the sales team. They come, they join us. Like they do you know, three, four, five weeks. You know, mm. they like it so much. They're like, let you come to me and say, listen, I've got like five friends looking for jobs. Like, um, yeah. can, you, can you please hire them? Yeah, yeah. fantastic. So what are the key positions, the big positions you're looking to fill at the moment, just in case for any of our listeners? Are- yeah, so we're always looking to hire um, a CFO, mm-hmm. someone, financial services background, ideally understand both debt and equity capital markets, looking yeah. to join. 
a scale-up. We're always looking for credit. Uh, we're always looking for sales staff, BDMs. We're in the market for engineers, full stack. But generally, by the time this goes on air, we'll probably have two or three more vacancies. We've got an opening in digital marketing and growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, visit our careers page. It's lumi.com.au slash careers. Sorry for sort of using the no. free air plug to uh, promote. Follow me on LinkedIn. Also, you know, we post stuff on LinkedIn all the time. But generally, any sort of smart, ambitious person that's looking to join like a very rapidly growing and dynamic startup, you know, send us a CV. If we're not looking for your skill set today, we'll probably be looking for it tomorrow. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Really exciting what's happening here. So what, what does the future look like for Lumi without giving away anything too strategic? No, no, no there's, no, there's no risk for that. Um, <laughs> so as I said, we're constantly raising money, both debt and equity, and there are going to be exciting announcements on those both of those fronts soon. We're scaling up very, very quickly. In 2020, we're going to launch a new product that we're very excited about. It's something we've been thinking about for, for a long time. I think it's 2020 is going to be like 2019 for us on steroids. Again, <laughs> more than doubling our staff, most likely really growing rapidly by sort of anyone that's walking through the door today and will come back, whatever it is, 17th of January, we're recording this on 17th of January, 2021, will not recognize the business. Yeah. Like the, the rate of growth is just so fast. Yeah. It's just unrecognizable in terms of like people, bums and seat, the office, the buzz will be the same, you know, the people will be the same, but everything else is, uh, yeah. is different. Absolutely. And the um, obviously, would you be looking, obviously one of the big problems you have is recruitment. Um, would you be looking overseas for staff and so? Because that's always a difficult one. For a few things, possibly, but no. Like I, I'm not a fan of offshoring. Yeah, it's. I think at this stage of the life cycle of the business, it's not a priority for us. As we scale massively, is there room to offshore some of the back office things, accounts, uh, mm. etc. Possibly, but yeah. like it's really not something that's on our radar. And I'd be very, very surprised if it will happen in 2020 or even 2021. Like we actually, even we're very decentralized business in the sense that the heads of the verticals have a lot of autonomy and you know, report upwards, but really manage their vertical mm. independently. We are actually quite a centralized business in we all sit in the same office. That's something that's quite important for us. You know, yeah. you know, we'll get satellite offices around Australia for sales and distribution so we can be closer to our customers. Of course. We're looking at opening Melbourne and Brisbane this year, but those will be small offices. But like, it's actually, I think it's really important to sit together in an open yeah. space, be able to grab something, have a meeting. Now, all these technologies are great. People don't use Skype anymore. Zoom or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is, and they do create a lot of efficiencies, but like nothing beats actually sitting together in a room when you need someone. Yeah. If I need to speak to the CTO, I need to speak to the COO. The COO needs to speak to the CTO, whatever it is. Yeah. Send a message, let's meet in the meeting room, get a board, draw it out. Board it, yeah. And the minute you don't have that, you lose your agility. Like in a business like ours at our life, sta- uh, life cycle stage, you can't afford to lose the agility. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've seen both sides, um, but that ability to communicate and get things done quickly is just absolutely critical. So, you know, different businesses face different challenges, right? Like, so, you know, it's a very high level of operations or processing, et cetera, massive cause, you know, like every business has a different calculus, right? Like Mm. where we're at and for what we're trying to do, it doesn't make sense for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're rapidly running out of time. Um, What advice would you give for other founders um, about entrepreneurialism or even ensuring a reasonably balanced lifestyle if there is such a thing as being balanced as an entrepreneur? I think if you're looking for a balanced lifestyle, don't be an entrepreneur. In fairness, I think you just, you can't have what people call a balanced lifestyle and being an entrepreneur. So given that is the case, I would suggest for people to try and do it earlier in their Mm. career or in their life than later. You know, I'm on sort of the later on the older age of older end of the age distribution for entrepreneurs. I'm you know, married. I've got a family. So, you know, that lack of balance, the cost of that is higher. Yeah. I think the most important thing is like, you just got to be super committed to what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, from a different example, you know, my, as I said, my wife's a doctor, my young eight year old son says he wants to be a doctor. My, we obviously encourage him so much. And mm. my wife always says, you know, like if you can be anything else, be anything else. But if you've got that, Learning desire yeah. to be a doctor, yeah. you got to do it, and then you know make the sacrifice and do it, and be the best that you can. And you know, mm. and the same is true about being an entrepreneur. It's, it's all encompassing. It's like asking someone what advice would you give like a new parent about <laughs> you know having a neonate and having yeah. a balance. Like, like there's nothing right. Like they need to eat five six times a day. They need their nappy change. Yeah. They that runs your life, mm. and you know if you can sort of go for dinner with your wife or your partner, whatever it is between those things, that's great. Yeah, but that is the anchor and the compass of your life, mm. and you've got to run your life according to that. And the same is true for being an entrepreneur. Like it changes as the business becomes more mature. But like at the beginning, yeah. you know, I've had to cancel family holidays because of, you know we're just mm. doing a capital raise and there's a meeting, etc. and you've got to be able to make that commitment. Like my son's got a desk here and he comes to the office literally every day. He does his homework. He has his dinner here. Yeah. If you're not willing to do that, don't do it. Yeah. But if you do and you are like, there's nothing more rewarding, right? Like I just just wake up in the morning and I just can't like, I urge my son, come on, let's get ready quickly so I can drop him off at schools. Yeah. So like I can get into the office. Yeah. As quickly as I can, I just like love it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I can I can relate to the amount of times I've had um, uh, when my daughter's been with me. It's just a case of <laughs> you're going to have to amuse yourself now for today because I've got to get this thing out or got to get this. How old is she? She's 16 now, so okay. she's one of these really committed people as well. She's just finished year 10 and going into year 11, okay. and and she's just one of these people that just strives all the time, and so she gets it yeah. completely. So, But no, it is tough on everyone Great is the most important life skill. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's fantastic. So if there was one piece of advice you could give to any budding entrepreneur, what would it be? Startups are a team sport. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone focuses on the founder and you're interviewing me and, you know, sort of going around and interviewing everyone else. And, yeah. you know, I'm at the forefront. It's my picture that's on the FR and, you know, 
one day when this will be successful and we list or we sell a few billion dollars again, it'll mm-hmm. be my photo and my name. But like it, it genuinely, genuinely, genuinely is a team sport. And yeah. You've got to surround yourself with a first class yeah. team. Um, I would say like you better off, you've got much better chance of success being a first class team and a second class idea. Yeah than a first-class idea and a second-class team, right? Like Because Absolutely. the idea you can tweak, but the team you can't, right? Well, you can, but like the minute you've got to make sure that you have the best people around you that complement your skills, yeah. don't surround yourself by clones. Yeah. And yes, man, surround yourself by people that challenge you and complement your, mm. your skills. Yeah, absolutely. That's a brilliant piece of advice. And final couple of things. If you had a magic wand and you could change anything, either Lumi or yourself personally, what would you wish for? If I had a magic wand, like I, I, well, it's, a, it's a tough question. There's, 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 so yeah. there's so many things, you know, like in the personal life, obviously, yeah. health of my family, etc. But, you know, you know, this is a professional startup podcast. I think the one thing I'd wish for is, and it goes back to the recruitment, like that it's always that I'll have the best people around me yeah. and that I don't make hiring mistakes because yeah. every, like, yeah, again, you can fix those, but like sometimes like it's hard to fix and it's, and then the damage. So like, if I could say like one thing that like every hire that I make from now on will be like solid gold, mm-hmm. everything else will fall into place. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Just closing up now, where can listeners find out more about Lumi? And what you're doing with Lumi, and how can they contact you? Here's, here's your chance for a pitch yeah, so, to all those small and medium businesses out there. So, yeah, come to our website, lumi.com.au, and that's L U M I. Follow me on LinkedIn, call us 1 300 Lumi. If you have any question, or whether you know, you're a small business or looking for employment, or whatever the case may be, feel free to reach out to me personally. Email me at Yanir, that's Yankee Alpha November India Romeo. I repeat, Yankee Alpha November India Romeo at Lumi, which is Lima Uniform Mike India.com.au. And yeah, I'm always happy to speak to you know, budding entrepreneurs or definitely small businesses that are looking for, for help. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Yanir, for being our guest. No, thank uh, you for having me. That was um, absolutely wonderful. And we'll be back soon with our next episode of the Founders Podcast. Thank you, Yanir, again. Excellent and very insightful. Thank you very much.